Hello, 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 and welcome to Tease Me. This is a podcast about the intersection of golf, business, and life. And occasionally we'll drop some gems on networking and just how that makes your life better. Because knowing more than one person is actually a good thing. Hello, Tease Me listeners. Welcome to another episode. It is season three, and we are excited to be here talking to entrepreneurs. It's also Q3, July, aka there are not that many months left in the year for you to accomplish the goals that you set back in the beginning of it. So in 2022, in January, you were saying you're going to build that business, you're going to write that book, you're going to sing that song, whatever it was. Nike said it best, just do it. Easier said than done, I'm sure. Surround yourself with people that support you and that encourage you to move forward. Don't let fear stop you. And all of those motivational things that we say to get people started. For some, you are enjoying the fruits of your labor and you are riding high. And so you don't really have a lot of things to reset. However, it is still a good time to look at your business and see what is working well so you can do more of whatever that is and finish the year strong. For those that had setbacks, and many have, you didn't accomplish what you wanted. Things happened in your personal life. You suffered setbacks and loss. It's okay. These things happen, and our best looks different every day. But we can still move forward one step at a time. Eckhart Tolle talks about just being present. In this moment, what can you do? What is that one thing that you can do to help move your goal forward? That brings us to our next guest. Sydney Hardy is the managing partner of Hardy Brothers LLC and global investment advisor for the Probabilities Fund LLC. He has a broad base of experience in global investing, derivatives research, quantitative analysis, and portfolio management. Sydney is a former trading manager at the Bank of N.T. Butterfield in Bermuda, where he led their fixed income and derivatives trading initiatives. He began his career as a market analyst at Solomon Brothers, focused on the European bond markets. Later, he joined Lehman Brothers in both New York and London as a bond trader. He was also vice president in both credit markets trading and global rate strategy groups at J.P. Morgan. A chartered financial analyst, CFA, Sydney is a member of the Alternative Investments Committee and the Performance and Risk Committee of the CFA Society of New York, which is CFA NY. He is a former member of the United States Investment Performance Committee, USIPC, and current member of the Global Promotions Committee for the Global Investment Performance, GIPS. He is also a member of the Board of Advisory for the Master of Science Program in Financial Risk Management at the University of Connecticut School of Business. He holds a BA in Economics and Mathematics from Yale University and holds an MS in Applied Statistics from Columbia University. Tease me listeners, let's welcome Sydney Hardy. Hello, 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 tease me listeners. We have our guest this, this, for this episode, Sydney Hardy. And as you know, for this season, we're focusing on the entrepreneurs, the business hustlers, and the people that have really done a great job in establishing their presence in their field and domain. So as you know, Sydney is you're an expert in this field and domain. Tell us more. How did you get into this line of work? Well, thank you. First, thank you for having me uh, as a guest. I very much appreciate it. Um, Really just uh, started, uh, always had an eye for eventually uh, starting a firm of my own. I spent a very long time, almost uh, 35 years now in uh, the banking finance business. Uh, started in research as a research analyst, uh, following around uh, The Economist and 
uh, charting uh, statistics and, uh, and running calculations, eventually moved into a trading uh, position. It was probably at that point, uh, once I joined uh, what was you know, the former Lehman Brothers, uh, that I really thought I would start my own investment firm. I spent a lot of time in credit derivatives, spent a lot of time in derivatives in general, futures options. Um, and so really it was always there. It was just a matter of finding the right, right opportunity. And this, uh, you know, being, you know, partnering with uh, a, a like-minded person, uh, ultimately starting my own firm and then ultimately us teaming up uh, to build the business uh, is something that uh, was just, you know, happened very organically, quite frankly, after many years in the business uh, uh, and ultimately seeing the opportunity uh, in the markets and, and seizing on it. So one of the things our listeners may not be as familiar with is the financial markets and industry, like banking as a whole. Can you just share this concept of advisement and investment firm, what that means to the average listener? Sure. What it means to the average listener, you'll probably see a lot of television commercials for various firms, uh, the Goldman Sachs, the Morgan Stanley's, the Charles Schwab. Uh, probably the largest and most successful uh, advisory firm or, or, or financial planning firm is obviously Charles Schwab. Uh, you'll probably see him on te television quite, quite a bit. And so essentially what it means is taking uh, a, 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 a individual's uh, wealth and helping them, assisting them, managing that money, ultimately uh, doing what we call financial planning, organizing their investments, organizing their succession plans. Usually these are uh, entrepreneurs who have cashed out of their business, have retired, are looking to pass on that wealth to their children and their uh, future generations. And so there are firms that are organized to assist in that process. They're usually labeled dot, dot, dot wealth management, or dot, dot, dot advisory. And so uh, my role is a little bit of a hybrid role. And so I do what would be uh, characterized as financial planning uh, for high net worth individuals, for endowments, for uh, other uh, private entities. But I also manage money my, uh, myself. And so essentially what that means is taking on individual assets, and investing those in the market under uh, very strict rules and regulations and a prescribed uh, strategy. And so there are separate parts of the business that you that would be important to understand. So when we talk about, if we, if we say, for example, investment management or hedge fund, those are entities that are specifically uh, regulated to manage money in a certain way. So for example, I have what is called a global macro strategy. You will hear strategies like long short equity. You'll hear strategies like private equity or real estate investing. So each of those are prescribed strategies. There's a specific process that you have to put in place uh, and, are, and are monitored to make sure that, that, that those assets are managed in the way that you say they are. So that's a, I, I've described two separate uh, types of business within the general financial uh, investment services business. One is wealth management, 
One is investment management. Uh, and so those are those are characterized that way. You know, it's interesting because a lot of people have um, recently become more interested in the financial markets, mm-hmm. um, the fluctuation, the stabilization of the dollar in comparison to the euro, uh, the, the crash or the behavior of crypto. And so people are curious and trying to get a better understanding of when do they start seeking professional help or how long do they try to do it for themselves? When you think of the wealth management, when do people reach out to someone like yourself for your services? Sure. Typically, they reach out to me at the stage of their investing, uh, I guess their investing lives, when they're looking to diversify outside of something that they have a specific expertise. One of the first things I do, uh, particularly when we're dealing with wealth management or financial planning, is establish what those assets are that they're putting in play. So for example, I my expectation on my clients is they be, have some somewhat uh, some uh, expertise or at least some understanding of a checking account, a savings account, and those, that's the foundational understanding. You understand that you put your money in savings, it earns interest over a set period of time. Once you establish that, then you look at, okay, what do we see every day? Well, I look at the stock market. Well, understanding what are earnings per share, understanding what EBITDA is, understanding that markets move up and down, and you can either invest broadly in a broader index like the S&P or the Dow, or you can invest in individual stocks like Chipotle or Starbucks. I typically recommend for the starter uh, wealth accumulator, start with the things you know. You know your bank account, you know your savings account. If you own a home, you know everything about uh, mortgage financing, those types of things. You watch and see everything from from, uh, Facebook Meta to Chipotle to uh, McDonald's. Invest in the things that you're familiar with and and the things that you like uh, building on. And then once you've maxed out those investments, then you come to a professional and say, hey, I'm interested in crypto and I have a little extra money. Why tell me about that? Or, hey, I'm interested in private equity. Tell me about how that works or venture capital or global macro. Those are, you always want to establish the foundation first before you go to a professional. If I'm managing your bank account and your savings account, I'm not working in your best interest as your fiduciary. Uh, And you'll hear about that word a lot. If you're looking for someone, uh, a professional uh, to manage your money, always look for the word fiduciary. What does that mean? Fiduciary means I'm obligated by law to look out for your best interest first and not just mine, line my, line my, your, line my pocket with your money, so to speak. So you always want to look for those things first. Um, so I debate that people are actually acting in the best fiduciary interest of anyone these days. It is like the Wild West when we're looking at it. But there are a few things that you said I want to piggyback on or go back to. So you threw out EBITDA, and I, I'm wondering, people know that that's not like a name or a person. It's earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. And well, I apologize. I, I have to remember <laughs> it's okay. the acronym. So we, we should stay very, you know, 
the basics of understanding you know, that if you're for those of you who are out there who are in business school or in an accounting class or uh, or just interested, that's the foundational measure of value for an individual stock. So you you know we throw out these terms, but the basic thing to remember is like any operating business, there's earned there's there's assets and there's liabilities and how those things relate to each other determines the overall value of a company. So for now, just just uh, just focus on that. We'll have a separate podcast on EBITDA alone or uh, or financial statement analysis alone, but we won't complicate it matters complicate matters here. No, but it's a good segue because when you're thinking or when I'm discussing the things that you do in your business, how do people think about as entrepreneurs those key concepts that help you evaluate stock? So as an entrepreneur and a business owner. Besides just like flipping the services that we have, how do we start to think about it from the perspective of, I want to generate wealth. I want to look at my business and think about EBITDA and think about these things. How do people start to embrace it? Because you're not taught that in school and then everybody didn't go to B school, but everyone has a business idea perhaps. Right. I mean, I think, I think at least from my perspective, the way, the way I did it is that first you have to understand, you know, there's kind of three buckets. That, 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 you, that you should think about. There's the asset bucket, there is the liability or debt bucket, and then there's an investment bucket. And I'd like to think of each of those three uh, as if you were, you know, if you were at a wedding you, and you were filling champagne glasses uh, on kind of a towel, you know, and if, if you know, I think of debt as being the first one you need to fill in the sense of, you always want to start with as little debt as possible uh, as an up and coming entrepreneur. Once you establish that bucket is taken care of, then you move to the accumulating assets bucket. That would, for example, mean something like investing in stocks, things like investing in bonds, in a savings account, things like investing in perhaps other businesses, which is another subject, acquiring assets. I typically like to first establish myself as perhaps a limited investor, a smaller investor in a particular asset, and then build into a more substantial uh, investment once you have confidence that they're going to do well. And then finally, once you take care of building certain assets, then you can make more more larger uh, investments. So for example, if you want to become an entrepreneur, you have to have capital to go to a bank to get loans, to get lines of credit. You use those assets as collateral. And so if you think of those three buckets as I have to fill, I have to take care of the debt bucket. That when I mean fill the debt, debt glass, I mean no debt or very little debt or debt that's very short term. So for example, basic example is your credit card. If you're running up balances every month and acquiring interest on those uh, uh, and, and being charged interest on that debt, you're not you're not taking care of that debt. Paying off debt as quickly as possible is important. So credit card debt, student loans, those are the two most obvious for young for young investors. Take care of those things first. Don't move anywhere else until you take care of that. You always have to take care of your taxes. So if you have taxes that have accumulated over a certain number of years, you want to take care of that. Next stage 
acquiring assets, buying stocks, buying bonds, maxing out your pension. If you have a steady job, uh, if you have a good paying job, maximizing your 401k, making sure your employer maxes out his matching funds. One of the biggest, um, one of the biggest things that young uh, uh, job seekers and young, uh, young employees don't do, they don't max out their pension funds. Max out your 401k every year. Max out the matching funds for your internal pension. That's the best way to start building assets early so that you can start accumulating interest and, and, and growing that money properly. And then finally, when you've accumulated enough assets, you've alleviated a lot of debt. Now I can go and put a stake out and start being an entrepreneur. I had to take my own savings. I was fortunate enough over a number of years, I couldn't go out and just get people to hand me millions of dollars. I had to basically run my investment fund on my own money and the, and the money from friends and family until I built a track record. Then once I built a track record, I could go and show that track record along with some collateral, get a line of credit from an, from an investment firm, get other stakes and uh, larger stakes in the company. So. You can't do any of that in terms of really ramping up your business till you alleviate debt and have assets that you can lean on for collateral. So, yeah, and those, that's, a, that's those are the building blocks. No, it's a good point, but I, I think wealth management, wealth management. When you think about it, is it not the art of taking other people's money and making more money off their money? Well, it absolutely is. But before you can do that, you got to make sure the reverse is not happening. And the most common thing. Why are the banks and the credit card companies worth so much? Because they let you have those outstanding debts accumulate and generate interest, usually around 8 to 12%, sometimes 30% if, you're, if you've got the wrong credit card. And so they're doing the exact same thing that you should be doing. Banking your interest and making you more dependent on them as opposed to the reverse. So the first job of any up and coming entrepreneur is take care of those debts. Uncle Sam will let you defer your taxes, but he's also gonna charge you penalties and interest. Keep that in mind if you decide to defer your tax or, or if, if, you know, if, you, if you wanna defer your tax, just understand you're gonna pay a penalty, you're gonna pay interest. And so anything, even on a mortgage, let's talk about mortgages very briefly. You're going to, depending on the length and the extent to which you, you take out that loan, if you don't have a significant upfront uh, payment, uh, you're going to be paying down interest for a significant period of time. That's money out of your pocket that you could be using as an entrepreneur. So if you are going to invest in a home. Many people want to invest in a home. Invest in cars. Cars are depreciating assets. So if you take a take on debt to buy a car, not only do you have a depreciating asset, but you're paying interest on that debt that you owe back to uh, to to the car company. Mortgages work the same way. If you don't put significant money down, you're paying significant interest. Those that's money out of your pocket. You want the reverse. Take care of your debt first. Turn the tables on these banks. When they're paying you interest on your assets, that's 
the position that you want to be in. Um, if you own stock and they're paying you dividends, that's the position you want to be in. If a venture capital firm that you've invested in is paying you 20x on your initial investment, that's the position you want to be in. So it's interesting you say that the art of the hustle has changed slightly when it comes to mortgage. Right now, the big pitch is like get um, a rental property, mm-hmm. rent it, and yeah. then flip it and turn it into an Airbnb. So mm-hmm. in reality, nothing's in your name, but you're generating cash and you're able to use it. Right. What are your thoughts around the legitimate aspect of acquiring debt? Like I have a friend who said, people shouldn't get credit cards anymore. And I'm like, well, how do you establish your footprint? And how do you decide, like, if you decide to be an entrepreneur, that means you're not going to have any credit history. Don't you need that? So what, you know, what are your thoughts for entrepreneurs that have been told not to acquire any debt or have been told, you know, there's other ways around it than instead of using your, your name or your credit? Sure. And that's a great question. I would say there's two types of debt. There's dumb debt which I've been described, credit card debt, student loans that you could pay off, but rather than pay them all off, you're paying that plus the interest. We're the waiting for Biden. Has- you know that, wait, wait, you know they're waiting for Biden to be like, I excuse it. So I'm not paying it if I think he might, he might just no get rid of it. Good luck with a 50-50 Senate getting that passed. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't hold my breath. It's a great idea. I hope it happens. But in the meantime, you're paying penalties and you're paying interest. That's money out of your pocket. That's dumb debt. Uh, uh, another example would be, uh, you know, kind of taking, you know, let's let's keep it real. Paying, you know, getting, you know, getting loans based on uh, on your salary, kind of payday loan type of stuff where interest is absorbing it or, 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 or predatory. Let's talk about that in our community because it happens a lot. Taking out department store debt. Uh, buying those department store credit cards at 20 and 30 percent, you're going to look great, but you're going to be taking a lot of money out of your pocket. And again, you know, there's such a great business around disrupting the business of cars. Don't need to buy a car when you can perhaps, you know, manage uh, manage yourself in, from a transportation standpoint without taking on that debt or uh, uh, debt for an appreciating asset. That's dumb debt. What's smart debt? Debt, smart debt would be uh, characterized by, hey, I'm going to buy a, uh, and if I'm in that business, let's talk about real estate, for, for example. If I've saved $100,000 and I buy a, uh, a property at auction for $60,000 and I spend $20,000 to renovate it, and now it's worth about $90,000, $95,000. And so I'll go to that bank and use that to collapse as collateral to buy to get another two hundred thousand dollar line of credit so I can buy a hundred and fifty thousand dollar home, spend twenty thousand on that, renovate it. Now it's worth two thousand two hundred and ten thousand dollars. That's smart debt. There are lots of examples of that. Uh, investing uh, in, in real estate investment trust work, you know, you, you know uh, or excuse me, that's an example of a smart use of debt in the real estate business. How would you do that in the stock market? Well, there's something called dollar dollar averaging, where maybe I buy McDonald's and as it goes down to four, then at 70, I buy a little bit more, then it rallies to 80. That's using that smart, the smart use of assets to accumulate more value uh, down the road. 
those take a lot of time. You have to be very smart about it. But again, I can, I, there are lots of examples of using, and again, I, I started the conversation by saying, I took my savings. So at the end of the day, foundationally, can't do any of this unless you sacrifice, save your money, and have that foundation to build on. You know, there's no such thing as get rich quick. Uh, I keep saying that to people, and I'm going to say it again. There's no such thing as get rich quick. Everything starts from a foundation of savings. And a foundation of stage savings starts with not having kind of installment debt. Credit cards, student loans, cars, real estate not handled properly. So it all, you know, at the end of the day, you, you have to start with a sound foundation of sacrifice and saving and, and really being smart about the debt you take off. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things that I didn't see in your bio, you're a serial entrepreneur. You've invested in a few other businesses. Tell us about some of the other businesses that you've been part of even before or during the time that you had the fund. And, and thank you for that. And I, I appreciate that. I am following and I would strongly suggest what I've just described is the Warren Buffett School of uh, Investing, which is um, I invest in people. And what, what, I've, what I've done, you know, most of my investing career, notice that investment career started with the foundation of savings, moved into acquiring uh, investment assets and running a business. Now I'm investing in people. And what, what you will see and what, you, what, what you're alluding to are specific investments. I have investments in the, uh, in the food, and, food and beverage business. I have investments in the hotel business. I have investments in the restaurant business. I have investments in other funds. Uh, but the one thing that unites all of those investments is I am making investment in the people people who I, I, I've observed over an extensive period of time. Uh, I'll give you a quick example. Uh, just uh, I am investing in, I'm, I have several investments in the food and beverage business. The reason why I got into those investments about 10 years ago, I went to a friend's birthday party I, uh, at a restaurant that this gentleman was, was running. And he put on such a wonderful party for uh, the people who were there that I said, you know what, let's keep in touch. I went back to his restaurant. I began to patronize his restaurant, eat his food. He had specialty wines. He had specialty uh, uh, types of things. I became a regular customer. He approached me one day and said, hey, I've got an idea about another venture. Will you come with me? And I will show you what I'm going to do. I went to visit him. He sold me on the opportunity. And the nice thing about it was he gave it, you know, it wasn't just me. There were 15 other investors that he had walked through this process of inviting them, showed me the place, gave me visuals, showed me the financials, how he was going to invest, how my, how he was going to uh, create the ROI that, that was generated. That has probably been the most successful venture I've ever been in, including the investments that I invest that, that, that I manage. 
it, uh, it, you know, at, at to date, and this is about nine years ago, I'm probably right now, and the clock is still ticking, because I every time he comes to me with an investment, now I just write a check, because I have so much confidence in him and what he does. And so now I'm probably right around 300X from the initial investment eight years ago. Those are the types of things, invest in people, and not just people, but how they do business. This guy didn't just you know, sing a song and dance and, and show me uh, how he's and, and tried to talk me into to, uh, uh, investing in his product. He had showed me financials. This was a classically trained chef who was showing me financials and walking me through EBITDA and, and return on investment and, and expenses and payroll. So those are the types of people I want to be around. And so if, if I have any advice for you over the course of this podcast, as an investor, as a saver, as a human being. Surround yourself with smart people and invest in those people. Uh, and, and, and not just in, in capital or in money, invest time, learn from them. I spend more time listening to this guy than anybody. Uh, and so that, that's really important so, uh, to really uh, evaluate people understand what they do, then look at their business and evaluate that. So that's an interesting perspective because it kind of moves into the concept of conversation around other people's money. There's a school of thought that talks about, you know, you can build your business using other people's money through investments if they believe in you. And so you Mm -hmm. may not always have the savings. And so in this case, you've just given an example of that. But what makes Mm -hmm. you confident that like, even if they're not putting money in, that it's still a great idea? There was a level of detail around what he was presenting me that was overwhelming. And so, again, as I, as I mentioned, I don't just talk to people about how I'm going to make the money. I show them my strategy. I make sure they understand what I'm doing. And I, and I show them a track record of a documentable, a verifiable track record of performance. It isn't just me doing sales, it's showing and laying out uh, the whole totality of the picture. Uh, You can't do anything in this world without numbers. And so another thing, another piece of advice that I would give is you always want to be the master of the numbers around what you're doing, whether it's a bank account, a checking account, a, 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 a complex investment, a, a, a business that you're running, you always want to be the master of the numbers around it. So that means you got you to do some homework. You've got to work uh, and understand your, you know, all of the detail. You know, there's, you know, accountants and uh, uh, those financiers, they, you have to pay them a lot of money. I have to pay my tax people a lot of money. I have to pay my accountant a lot of money. But I also hold him accountable. I owe he. I owe. I owe. I owe. Uh, one is a she and one is a he. I hold them accountable. They don't pass anything by me that I don't understand myself. So you never uh, just hand it over to the numbers people. You become a numbers person, uh, and that, that's an important uh, uh, aspect of this as, as well. It, it's not. Uh, it's way beyond that. Do your homework. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good one. You also mentioned you're a certified, no, you're a chartered financial analyst. 
What does that mean for the people that are listening? So we see CPA, we see CFA, we see all these letters, but what does it really mean to be a CFA? It's it's really a it's a industry-wide effort to professionalize the investment management business. Uh, it was specifically formed with that effort in mind. The whole concept of fiduciary, the concept of uh, of incorporating ethics and a sense of uh, the client's best interest. It's a it's an effort to professionalize this business in a way that it, that needed. You, 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 we've had a history of Bernie Madoffs and all kinds of Ponzi schemes. We've had every generation has had its ripoff artist. Uh, and what the CFA Institute and what the CFA designation is attempting to do is create a professional, to professionalize this business in such a way that people can have confidence in the management of money and uh, and the and the ult and, and really to uplift the business into a place where we you know we we hold lawyers in a, a certain level of esteem we hold doctors at a certain level of esteem because there's qualification you can't I can't just walk out tomorrow and start uh, performing brain surgery I have to go through training I have to study I have to have a code of conduct that I live on I can't just run out and, and fly a plane. Uh, I have to have certain training. I have to have a certain level of professionalism dedicated to the process. And I certainly wouldn't equate myself to a doctor, a lawyer, or or uh, an airline pilot. But there's a professionalism that needs to be brought to this business that brings credibility. Frankly, makes my job easy. Part of the reason why I pursued the CFA is that when I go into these meetings and they see that designation, it's like okay. We know you've had some training. You know you got some ethics. You got some got a sense of what right and wrong. And maybe I'm willing to hear you out. That's important in this industry, in a, in a business where you just don't know everybody come up, comes off the street. And so that's really uh, the purpose of, of the CFA designation and why I'm such a, a supporter of it, and and obviously why I pursued the three years of uh, of training necessary to to achieve the designation. Wait, what are you telling me? Having 120,000 followers doesn't make me a certified expert? Sorry, it doesn't. <laughs> you're, you're wonderful, you're charming, but it's like, hey, uh, it, it's, it's important. We, and, and you know, you know, I know we're, we're, we're having fun, but hey, particularly, you know, we, we, we can talk about this. We're amongst friends. You know, as a member of a minority group, as a member of a of a business that has not always necessarily been like, from the standpoint of technology, from the standpoint of financial services, these are industries that are have not necessarily been kind and, and open-armed and, and generous to uh, to those of us in, in minority communities. We've seen the movies, we've seen all kinds of stories. Um, you know, we have to break through barriers and this is a way to do it. I mean, you know, there's a there's a reason why, you know, you go to college and get a certain major as opposed to another. You want to you want to convey to potential employers and to potential investors that there's a level of credibility to you that comes with your training, with your education. And, and, and those things are important, whether you're pursuing a tech uh, industry, you know, they they'll find out real quick if you know C++ and Python. The, you yeah. know, in, in, in my business, they'll, they'll all understand if I, uh, the, the training that I have. And so it's important for us to break barriers 
And I try to eliminate the no option as much as possible. Uh, and, and that that's a that you know it's probably another podcast, but you want to create reasons to say yes and eliminate the reasons to say no. And I've had before I got the CFA designation, a lot of the talk was, well, you know, we might want to invest his, uh, with him, but you know he's not a CFA. He, I wonder if he really knows his stuff. And trust me, I've had whispers like that. Or maybe he doesn't quite have that master's degree that we're looking for. Maybe he doesn't have that designation. You want to eliminate those no's off the bat when you walk in the door. And I think this is another way of, uh, of doing it, at least the way I've done it over the course of my career. Absolutely. So you spent a majority of your career in financial services. Tell us more about like your golf story. How did you get into golf? You know, very much tied to uh, my career in the financial services industry after. You, you know, from my bio, you'll see I spent some time uh, in the Treasury Department at the Bank of N.T. Butterfield in Bermuda. Uh, and, you know, we had a substantial account with a number of broker dealers. And so, of course, sitting in Bermuda, where there's really only two things, well, there's three things you can do in Bermuda. Uh, and those who have lived in, in Bermuda will know what I'm talking about. The one thing you can do is you can swim. Because there's plenty of, you can do snorkeling, you can do swimming, there's lots of, it's surrounded by wonderful, beautiful water. Uh, so that's one thing you can do, you can swim. Uh, there's another thing you can do, which is drink. And one thing that Bermuda has are plenty of bars and plenty of rum swizzles and plenty of cocktails available on demand. Uh, and then the third thing you can do is play golf uh, in Bermuda. Nine courses over 58 square miles, uh, some of the most beautiful courses that you'll ever be on, some of the most picturesque uh, views that you'll have. So long story short, my broker dealers loved to come visit the Bank of N.T. Butterfield when I was there because they would bring me cigars, they would bring me golf balls, and they would book tea times on a regular basis on the island uh, at either Port Royal or Mid-Ocean or, or, uh, or Castle Oak. So we, we, I spent a lot of time being entertained by broker dealers. So I had to learn how to play golf because when I arrived in Bermuda, I didn't know how to play. And so one of the first things I had to do was go and take a lesson. I took a lesson actually at one of the hotels where I was staying before I even uh, was able to, to rent a home there and just started taking lessons. And I had played baseball all my adult life up until that time. So I, I had pretty good hand-eye coordination, but I, it, it's definitely the first couple of years of playing golf was like me playing golf with a baseball bat. I could make contact, but where it went depended on the diamond. There was a lot of hook and a lot of slice and a, and a lot of lost balls, but eventually I learned uh, and, and, and be able to, to at least be able to be functional on the golf course. I'm in no way uh, a, uh, a very good golfer. My handicap has last, has last tabulated was about a 23, which means I regularly shoot in the 90s uh, or almost a really low 100s when par is 72, but I have a lot of fun. <laughs> and you know what? And, and that's why we get along because if mm -hmm. you're going to be a managing partner and you're a scratch golfer, something's, something's giving. So there's got, something's got to give. Something's, yeah. Something's got to give on that. I don't, I know very few uh, billionaire scratch golfers. <laughs> and that's what, you know, that's what I'm, that's where I'm going. <laughs> right, right. And then like, if you were to I look back, I hope I get way better at managing my money, though. There you go. There you go. 
But if we were to look back, you were at Lehman, Solomon, JPM. Why didn't you pick up golf during those years? You know, to be honest with you, at the time I was, you know, I, I, I was at the time really into playing tennis. Uh, I really enjoyed playing tennis. I, I enjoyed squash. I really picked up squash uh, in undergraduate school at Yale. That, that I spent a lot of time playing squash. Played my father played a lot of racquetball and handball, so I got into that. And my future wife loved tennis. And our dates primarily were uh, she and I playing tennis. So I really didn't take up golf in a significant way. Uh, really, almost in my late 30s, early 40s. And so that it, it was just a matter of, and also I played baseball on the weekends as well. So if there was just not enough time and not enough hours in the day for me to really get, get playing golf. It wasn't until my knees went out in, in the early 40s uh, when I was uh, catching, you know, two or three games over the weekend that I said, well, maybe this golf thing, I need to try to spend a little bit more time because my baseball career is about over. <laughs> right, right, right. And so, like, if you were to think back, do you have a favorite course or a favorite golf moment? Oh, I can tell you, um, you know, playing with my father is probably the most, uh, uh, and really playing, you know, a foursome with my two boys and my father is probably the dream that I have. I try to do that at least once or twice a year. Uh, he lives uh, at Stone Creek uh golf uh golf you know it's kind of a golf club with uh he's you know, his home is is on the golf course so whenever we visit valdosta georgia uh it's a little slice of home but more importantly it's an opportunity to play around with him so certainly if i had a favorite course or at least a course that i'm most familiar with it's stone creek um you know but i, I have been very fortunate in that i've done a fair amount of traveling uh and played some wonderful courses I would say other than Valdosta, Georgia's at Stone Creek, probably have to say the Fairmont uh, Resort in Scottsdale is probably one of my favorites. Um, that's, a, that's a great one. Uh, the uh, Monterey Peninsula has a wonderful course adjacent to uh, Pebble Beach that, that I've had some wonderful times on uh, and spent some time. I haven't quite made Pebble Beach yet, uh, but eventually I'll get there. Um, and so, yeah, those are probably the ones that, that really stand out to me uh, in terms of just favorite destinations and, uh, uh, and wonderful places and times to play golf. Okay, awesome, awesome. So before we end, I just want to talk about Probabilities Fund. Yes. Where did that name come from and what is your vision for that fund? And for people that don't know, explain what a fund is first and then probabilities and naming and then what is your vision? Sure. Uh, a fund, you know, this fund uh, in particular, but in general, we talk about that's the investment management piece that I'm talking about. So I've gone out and my partner who's based in Seattle, we've gone out as a team and brought in uh, endowment funds, private investment firms. We presented them with a strategy, a way of making money in the equity markets. It is a long, short equity uh, fund that is really an algorithmic trading fund. When I say algorithmic, it means, you know, I'm a math major, uh, I'm, I have a master's, I have an undergraduate degree in economics uh, and math, and I have a master's in applied statistics. So the probability fund is obvious because my first class uh, was probability and statistics. First class of undergrad 
and I dedicated my master's in understanding statistics. And so one of the things that I've done, and this is an example of not only building my own numbers-based investing, uh, and when I say numbers-based investing is that the markets tend to move in certain patterns. And what statistics does is help you understand those patterns. And I've tested probably 50 years of market trading in about 3,000 different individual assets, stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities. And so I have a pretty good understanding of those patterns. And I make investments in the markets based on those patterns. Uh, and also with a sense of understanding risk, because whenever you have probabilities, probability might be right, probability might be wrong. So what I'm doing is managing risk every day. The probabilities fund specifically does that in uh, exchange traded funds, which is a index of funds uh, of US individual stocks. So if you think of the S&P, my job every day is to figure out not only how those individual stocks in the S&P 500 are gonna move, but in general, how that index is gonna move over the course of time. And based on my, the numbers that I calculate every day, I think it's gonna go up tomorrow, or I think it's gonna go down tomorrow. And I basically took that historic uh, track record and went out and brought investors in to invest in that strategy. Uh, and so, you know, long story short, all of my investments, I have a global macro fund, I have a long short equity fund. Each of those funds is essentially based on a, uh, uh, a fair amount of research on how those markets move at any one time. Probabilities fund is based on probabilities, statistical probabilities that, of market moves throughout, uh, you know, going forward um, in a nutshell. <laughs> That's awesome. So that's awesome. For people that are listening, I hope you know that the stock market is not just gambling. There is a science and an art to it. And understanding the data and analyzing is how we get to the performance that we're, we're seeking. And I think that one of the things that you've shared that's very important is the fact that it's a long term. It's a long game, not a short term. Yes. Yes. Awesome. And awesome. And reinforce, it's about numbers. I have to understand, you always want to understand numbers regardless of what you're involved in. And not, you know, the probabilities fund, is. there's no more stronger example of that. Yeah, yeah, and I love it. And I think that's a strong place for us to end. But if people are listening and there's something that you think that they should research or do or follow up with you, what would that be if you gave them a call to action? Well, my call to action would be to, you know, before you do anything, um, you know, I would read. There's, there's, a, there's several wonderful books about starting uh, to think about investing. Some of them aren't. I, I will say this. I'll give you two books to get started. Uh, there's a book called Market Wizards uh, by Jack Swizer. It gives a nice little summary of some of the top traders over the history of the last 30 years, how they made money how they researched uh, their investments, and how they manage risk in the market. There's another book that I really enjoy. It has nothing to do with investing, but it has everything to do with thinking through things. It's called The Checklist Manifesto. It's really understanding how going through a consistent process over time leads to success. 
those two books sit behind me at my office and I reference them frequently because part of really building towards something is designing a process that fits you and then running through that process every single day. Um, and a lot of it doesn't have to do with actually buying and selling stocks or whatever. It's about how you manage your life and how you manage the process of success. Um, it isn't just a shoestring, luck, flip of a coin, scratch out a lottery ticket. It's building a consistent process that you can live by and apply, most importantly, to finding success. So those two books start there and then build from, build from there. Okay. I love it. That's a great place to end because as a project manager, the checklist manifesto appeals to the nerd in me. And mm-hmm. I'm going to shout out one of the past CIOs I had. He was, you know, I love a person that shares knowledge with you. And he shared that book and gave me a copy. And I'll never forget, uh, Mr. Bob Heron gave me a copy of the checklist manifesto. And it, it really did change how I, I navigated everything from that point forward. So I think that's a great place to end. Thank you, Sydney, for joining us on this episode of Tease Me. Very welcome and kudos to you for making this happen. Thank you so much for uh, for inviting me. Thank you. So there you have it. Another guest sharing their journey into entrepreneurship. And let's be true. It's not for everyone. But what is consistent is that Sydney invested in himself. He saved his money and invested in his dream. And then he turned around and invested in other people. And I believe that's truly the cycle of life in this entrepreneurial journey. If you know me, you know that I'm a pretty upbeat person, but this has been a hard July. And I want to tell everyone, stay uplifted, continue to pursue your dreams, stay motivated, love abundantly, forgive those that have forsaken you. You do not need to hear an apology and listen to the next episode of Tease Me.